The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cavell. Dugout Nation, welcome to the Dugout CEO Podcast. Today we are joined by Jim Morris. His life story made cinematic history with the heartwarming and unforgettable Disney movie, The Rookie, starring Dennis Quaid. It was the fourth highest grossing baseball movie of all time. Some of you might know the story. If you don't listen in, you're going to get a glimpse of it. He was a high school science teacher, a coach in West Texas, who miraculously made it to the major leagues at the age of 35. In this episode, we're going to dive into what's on his mind today, first touching on the topics of parenting and helping lead the next generation. Then we're going to dive into his journey and get behind the scenes of what life was really like. It all seemed really good in the big screen, but what was it like in reality? And last, we're going to talk about his book, Dream Makers. It's all about surrounding yourself with the best to be your best. Jim, welcome to the Dugout CEO. Thanks, Casey. Glad to be here. So, I mean, I think everybody that's listening to this has watched the movie The Rookie. I mean, we're a baseball theme podcast, and I think it's like the fourth grossest, you know, highest grossing baseball movie of all time. So if you haven't watched it, obviously go and watch it. It's a tearjerker and super motivational. So to have you here, Jim, like it's just awesome. So thanks for making this happen. Glad to be here, Casey. You know, that's one thing people still ask me 24 years later, and they go, does it seem real? And I'm like, I, I wake up some mornings and I'm like, have I just been in a long dream? Because everything worked out so perfectly to make everything happen at the right time in the right place to keep me playing, to get me back into the game. Who, who knew God would use a group of high school kids to push me back into something when doctors said it will never happen again. You can't pitch. It's impossible. And then you come back throwing 12 miles an hour harder. That stuff doesn't happen. And so everything just kind of lined up like perfect dominoes and everything. I met the right people and I got put in contact with even better people like Dennis. Dennis has a new movie out. My only shameless plug, The Hill this weekend, another baseball movie. And what a turnaround for him and being able to go out and and see more stories, because I think that's what we need as a country right now is we need real and we need real stories because that's 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 what touches our heartstrings. We hear all the chaos and noise on the outside coming in. We need to go somewhere to restore our hearts a little bit and restore our faith in humanity a little bit. Yeah, we were kind of talking off air just about kind of I said, you know, what's on your mind? You said, well, a bunch of things I probably can't talk about, but I don't think I can get canceled. I'm sure I can. If I do, that's OK. But, um, you know, feel free to share. Like, what is on your mind? You were mentioning about hey, baseball, it's so much more than what happens between the white lines and dads and fathers and all of that. Like, what is your, on, your, on your mind today? You know, for the last three months, we've done a lot of convocations and a lot of speaking to school administrators all over the country, uh, educators, coaches, near and dear to my heart, because in my estimation, if we can keep kids in between the white lines, we can keep them off the streets. And we teach them teamwork. We teach them discipline. We teach them character the right coaches, right? There are some that are not good. It's just like in any business you have. You can be the CEO of a company, but you're only as good as the people around you. 
And if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, you're not going to be CEO very long. You might get a great payout package, but you're going to be out of a job because of the people around you will let you down. Everybody needs to be on the same page. And the book I wrote in 2020, Dream Makers, is, is about that. It's about surrounding yourself with the best people possible to be the best you, you can be. And right now, talking to my friends and talking to all these educators and things, we need fathers to show up, man. Fathers are not showing up. We're not. Our family unit has broken down. And you have a multitude of people telling you the family unit is not important in this country anymore. And that is absolutely the worst thing you can tell people. Because the majority of people are family people, and they don't want to hear that. And they're just tuning everything out. We need fathers to step up and be the dads that they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing out there that's kind of firing you up so much where is it people aren't doing these things or they're doing things they shouldn't be doing? Or I think it's not so much here as a student, former student, as an educator, as a coach, as a ball player, and as a five-time dad and a husband – we're not taking care of business. We're not taking care of business at home. If we're not taking care of business at home, we can't take care of business at work because home's dragging us down. And if we can't take care of business at work, then we're letting everybody at work down. And, you know, five kids we've had. Nobody's in prison. That's amazing. And being a parent takes time and it takes effort. And if you want to show your kids the right way, you have to take the time to do it. And I tell teachers when I talk to them all the time, I can sit here and talk to you, Casey, and I can say everything I want, but you're looking at me talk to you, and if I say something important and then I do an eye roll off to the side, you're going, hmm, I caught you. That's what you pick up. You don't listen to anything I said. You caught that eye roll, and you've already tuned me out. That's what those kids are seeing. They pick up body language a lot more than they pick up language every single day of the week. They do that all the time. They got their social media voice. To, to listen to the voices. They're watching how we say things, not what we say. So kind of takes me back to a scene in the movie, and I don't know if this actually happened, but you were in the telephone booth and you called home and you were like, hey, I'm thinking of quitting. Because you had, what, what did you have kids-wise at that time, was it? Three. You had three, and what ages were they? Eight, four, and one. Eight, four, and one. So yeah. I mean, let me ask this, Jim, you're really passionate about it, but let me go there. Like back then, I mean, you're on the payphone, you're trying to make it to the major leagues, you're struggling to make ends meet, you've got obligations here. Like how are you doing at that point for your children? Because I think a lot of people are struggling like today. They're they're in yeah. that phone booth right now. Like what was it like in your life back then and how did you handle all that? Because that had to be a lot of pressure. Well, I'll go back to back then first because that's the easiest memory for me. I took a pay cut from teaching to play minor league baseball. I wasn't able to help pay bills. And I have a lot of faith. From 15 to 18, my grandparents raised me. My grandmother was our church secretary. And so church and faith is big and important to me. Not the religion for walls part of it, but the faith aspect of it, of helping others. And so I wanted to go home and be with my kids. I'd never been away from them longer than a tournament on a weekend for baseball. I missed my kids. I wasn't paying bills. I sucked, basically. I'm a 35-year-old fat guy trying to be a kid again. Where, where exactly am I going? And on the other side of the pendulum, 
I'm getting to be that kid again at 35, and I'm finding a whole new respect for a game. I'm not making the decisions anymore. I am a decision. And so I'm trying to weigh all this stuff as I'm making this call. And after I hang up, I walk by this little league field, and I see this group of little leaguers playing the game of baseball, and it takes me back to when I was seven years old and um, my first year of baseball. And I don't know why, my dad put me in an eight to 10 year old league when I was seven for my first year of baseball. And I struck out every single time except one. I hit a home run. That was my only hit of the year. And I quit before the last game of the season because I was tired of striking out. You know, little kids, you don't want to fail. You don't want to let your parents down. My mom made me go to the awards ceremony the following week. The guy who took my place for one game at first base got all-star first baseman. That was the only time I ever quit. And I went, that is a lesson right there. That's my award. And I walked away from it and I quit. And I think we quit when the answer is right around the corner. When things get hard, we get skittish and squirmish, and we're like, oh, oh, my, my kid is mad at me. I can't have my kid mad at me. We're not their friends. We're their parents. I want my kid to love me more than I want my kid to like me. I want them to respect me more than I want them to like me. When they become 25, 30, 35, maybe then they'll like me, and they'll understand where I was coming from back then. But now they are inundated with so much stuff. When I was in high school, we had guns in our car because we were going hunting after school. Nobody thought about, hey, I'm going to take a gun into school. It was never even thought of. Now it's just a different world. And if you get bullied at school, that's one thing. But then you go home and you got this phone in front of you, you get bullied at home too. Kids have no escape. My idea is to be a parent and start doing things with your kids. Start off once a week, man. Have dinner at night every week with your family. And then once a week, have a game night. Go to a movie. Play a game. Go for a walk. Do something that your kid wants to do that finds interesting, even if you're bored out of your skull, and you have a pool, and your daughters keep going, grade me on this one, grade me on this one. Do it, because that's what they need. They need to be filled up. And sometimes we get so busy in our minds with the chaos from the outside, we forget what is really important. And, and our kids are. So, yeah, in the phone booth, I was ready to quit. I was going to go home. I had a job waiting for me at home in a great big high school. And the opportunity to work in a bigger environment with more kids and a job I love, I was successful at. My baseball teams won every school I was at. My science classes excelled. I was good at that. This other baseball thing, I'd failed at every single time. I was supposed to be good and talented. And now at 35, over the hill, here I am again facing this thing that has beat me down so much when I was supposed to be young and talented. Do I stay or do I go? And every time something happened to help me stay. One time it was a glove contract. They give me gloves. They send the money home from the glove contract. My now ex-wife pays the bills. We keep going. The next month it was a shoe contract. Money goes home. I get shoes. They pay the bills. I stay. The next time was the closest time I came to quitting. I 
When you're 35, your reaction time slows down a little bit. And I can even remember the guy who was the White Sox AAA team. His name was Chad Matola. I threw a ball, an outside fastball to him, and he tried to pull it. And what he did was he pulled it right up the middle. And I thought, I can't get my glove down there. I will skate save it and stop it with my shin. When the ball landed in the White Sox dugout, my pant leg was already ripping open because it was so swollen on my shin. I had to have my shin drain. And I went, I'm not as young as I used to be. Maybe I don't need to be here. And then from that moment on, I started getting better and better and better. And then we get in the playoffs and we're playing the White Sox again, who I'd had a, a terrible time with in the two months I've been in AAA. And I'm just dominating now. And I'm getting them left and right. And then the last night of the season, like, you're going up. And I'm like, Casey, I was so close to quitting. I had my stuff packed. I was ready to go home. I wanted to see my kids. I wanted to go back to Texas. I don't know why I want to go back to Texas. It's like 9,000 degrees here right now. But I wanted to go see my kids. And now I'm getting the dream of my life that I'd wanted since I was five years old, all because of a group of teenagers who, when everybody counted them out, I pushed them, they pushed back, and we made each other better. So, yeah, I think we quit too easy. I think things get tough. And we go, now ah, there's another road. What if Thomas Edison had quit after he failed a couple times? Where would we be now? We'd be in the dark. We wouldn't have this. We wouldn't have lights. So we quit. When it going gets tough, we close our mouths and we take it. And we don't need to take it. We need to stand up for what we know is right. But it doesn't have to be done ugly or anything else. We stand up for who we are. I'm a father. I'm a husband, number one. But number one above that, I'm God's child. And my job is to emulate that life in everything I do and say. And do I fail? <laughs> what time is it? 11.15. About 25 times I fail a day. But I keep trying. And I'm going to keep trying. And I wonder all the time, is going out and speaking all over the world, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? Because as I grew up, I never talked ever. And now I speak to people all over the world and they just gravitate to it. And it's the last thing I ever saw myself doing is going out and talking to people. And there are times I've wanted to quit that too. But then there'll be that one person who will come up to me and I've touched that cord and they're crying as they're telling me their story. And that's when I get filled up is when I hear other people's stories. Because we all have those stories, and everything ties us together. And some people are extremely successful and miserable. And some people are extremely poor, and they are happier than the richest person on the planet. And we can't find a median in between there. It's just like more, 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 and it's never happy. And over here, it's nothing, 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 and happy as they can be. If we can find that median in there and quit listening to all the outside noise telling us that we should and shouldn't be afraid of, maybe we can go out and live. Number one, get your house in order. And what I mean by house is our house. Number two, you can't do that until you, then you can go out and get your workhouse in order. And we've got to be mentors. We've got to be dream makers. 
we have to be men of character. And I'm not just talking to men, I'm talking to ladies too, because ladies lose their temper too. But we have to remember, in a world today with phones and cameras and everything being recorded, you may say one thing, but your actions are going to say something else. And if they don't accord, they don't line up with what you're saying, you're going to be called out immediately. And so we need to live up to that moral character of, I say this, I mean this, I live this. And we do it the right way, not once, not twice, every time. And if we make a mistake, we own that mistake, we apologize for it, and we move on. Sorry. That's good. No, I mean, fantastic. I, it's just good to get that perspective, and I think it's it's true. And, you know, looking back at your kind of journey, it feels like, Jim, there was that pattern of you were there pushing others, and then others were there pushing you. And I think that's really important because it feels like whether you're a coach or you're a leader or you're a business owner, like you're pushing, you're leading others, but who's leading you? And you had those kids to lead you, but then you were leading them. And I think that's really important for people to have those people. And then also for people to have people to – like confess those things that you're saying, like, Hey, I know I'm struggling as a dad right now, but it just feels like a lot of people bottle those up and they don't have that outlet to talk to people because you're right. I'm going to be a better dad if I have somebody else to look to for an example. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, I, I, I think myself, I have my dad to look at for several amazing things, but also some things that were not so amazing, but I have other people in my life to look at them on other aspects. And I think just a lot of people, they don't have that person to admire or look up to. And then if they do, they might not have somebody to like do life with, which I think is really important. I mean, imagine Jim being a pitcher, right? And you, you go to spring training and you got some pitching coaches there, but then they don't go to the games the rest of the year. I mean, that'd be a tough way to probably pitch, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And here's the other thing I love about baseball and, and, and a teaching tool. One, it's like chess, right? You're trying to figure out what the other team's going to do a couple moves beforehand. But two, if all you have is pitchers, who's going to field? And we all know pitchers can hit really well. But if all you have is pitchers, who's going to hit? Unless you have nine Shohei Otanis, you're not going to score. And everybody's got to do their job. The pitcher's got to do his job. The catcher's got to do his job. He's the captain on the field. It's the same way in business. Everybody has to do their job to make the team better. It's not a me thing. It's a we thing. And I think we forget that. We take it all on ourselves to make everything better. We're not strong enough for that. We need a good, solid team around us. And that's going to make us better. Because then when you get eight or nine great ideas, then you come up with a super idea. When you get one kind of good idea and you try to push it, it's not going to work. Yeah. So, Let's look at that day that you made it to the big leagues. You had your, you know, your first appearance. You struck out Royce Clayton, like, amazing. Like, was it amazing as it looked like on the big screen? Or was it, like, pressure? Or, like, what was really going on inside your mind at that point? And then kind of even the next couple months leading to the next season, like, how were you actually doing and feeling? I honestly can't tell you. Um... My agent, Steve Kanner, he said it looked like I was walking on a cloud. He said, even when you were pitching, your feet were coming off the ground when you were throwing the ball. I remember being driven to the stadium. This is how out of baseball I was. Because the first time around the early 80s, I never got an A ball. Six surgeries done. 
I do it my way. The doctors don't know anything. And I was wrong, of course. So when I come back, the van takes us from the airport underneath the stadium, which I didn't know existed, pardon me, and they drop us off in front of the clubhouse. Well, before I go in the clubhouse, I had to sign my contract. They got a table out there. Sign my contract. I walk in. Wade Boggs is the first person to come up to me, just gotten his 3,000th hit. Hugs me. They've heard about the crazy science guy for three months. He goes, that is the best story I've ever heard in my life. And I'm looking at him. I'm still a fan and a coach. And I'm like, you're Wade Boggs. You like chicken. Yeah. And that's what came out of my mouth. And, and he giggled and he hugged me. He goes, it's a great story. And he walked off. Roberto Hernandez, Fred McGriff, Jose Canseco. All these guys I watch play baseball now, they're my teammates. We go out to stretch. I got Canseco on one side, Fred McGriff on the other, Roberto Hernandez standing in front of me. And I'm like, Johnny Oates, the opposing manager at the time, led 150 people in the game that day that had ties to me. So that was awesome, man. My team got to see me. My kids got to be there. People who went to college with me got in the game. People who said they went to high school with me got in. I don't know who they were. They were old. I don't know what happened to them. But it was just so much fun. My home state, my favorite ballpark, where two years earlier, I was on my way to a national state softball, national softball tournament, sitting in the left field bleachers of the ballpark in Arlington going, if I could just play there one time, and then two years later, because of a group of kids, I'm out there on that field playing. It's just amazing. Yeah. And so that happened. But then, like, you know, you played a couple years and then, you know, you had some health challenges as well. And then you retired shortly thereafter. But like the movie and stuff, that was like all happening in those negotiations. Was that all happening at the same time while you were playing? Yes. And it was it was so fast forward. And Mark Chiardi is one of the producers for the movies, done like Miracle and several other Secretariat and a lot of other good things. He was my one of my minor league roommates back in the early 80s. And he pulled me aside after we talked to the president of Disney. And he goes, remember everything because it goes so fast you're going to forget and that's probably some of the best advice I've ever gotten was Mark telling me to remember everything. And I've still forgotten some stuff. But by and large, I've tried to remember everything. I'd get to the ballpark early. I'd leave late. I'd walk around the stadiums, especially like old Yankee Stadium and the monuments out in center field. Um, my, my grandfather died at ALS. So when I went there, my grandmother was still alive. I went out and we took a picture next to Lou Gehrig's monument. And I sent a picture to Alice of Lou Gehrig's monument and just memories of baseball. It's something I've wanted to do since I was five. And I'll tell you this, Casey, when you have a dream when you're five, six, seven, of this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And it doesn't work. Okay. You move on. But then you get a second chance at like 35 and find out, that dream that you wanted when you were five, six, or seven is so much better than you thought it would be when you were five, six, or seven. It's the dream of living it was so much more than just dreaming it. Getting to run out on that field, even in an opposing stadium with 40,000 people in the stands, was something I want to do my entire life. Because like they didn't even exist. 
Well, except for the people in New York and Boston, because they, they cursed me. I learned some new curse words, man. I left there giggling because I'm like, that is a pretty good one right there. But, but it's baseball, and people have congregated to baseball. Wars, recessions, depressions, civil unrest, baseball's been with us. And now it's become worldwide. And so I like to use baseball as a teaching tool because I think it goes well with business. And you're only as good as, as your players are. And everybody goes, oh, you're only as good as your management. Management's only as good as getting you on the field. What happens on the field, those are the players. And if the players don't pull their weight, who's going to pay for it? Well, front office could pay for it. Yeah. So everybody's got to do their job. I mean, when you get to that level, it's just the dream was not nearly as good as the actual life itself. Being able to go out and do it was awesome. When you get out to run onto the field at Fenway Park, on a field that you watched Hank Aaron play on when you were 10 years old as an all-star, your childhood hero, and you got a ball signed by Hank Aaron, that's pretty cool. And, you know, and then I go, then I ask people, I go, oh, did you watch Sandlot? And they're like, yeah, I watched Sandlot. Yeah, yeah, I Sandlotted Hank Aaron's baseball. Uh, if we lived in Connecticut, it snows, 30 seconds, done. And so then when I'm 40, he and I, because of Russell Athletics, an endorser of the movie, and he's their top spokesperson, he and I ring the closing bell for the stock exchange. And I'm telling him my story. Again, you have this picture of an idol in your head of what you think someone should be like and what they are like. And then when you meet them and you find out they're actually better than you even thought they could be, that makes it even better. I mean, he was the most genuine, honest person with the best laugh I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. So how, how did the the whole thing happened and work with the movie, like the movie business. I've never had on a, a movie star per se, or anybody has had a movie. Like you, you get a contract and then you, do, you, do you get a pick who plays you? Do you just sit there and just wait and money rolls in? Do you, do you actually not make any money from this thing? Because it's like, how does that all work? I had an agent who took care of all that. We did a book deal and a movie deal at the same time, different companies. And I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know what I was doing for sure. So I, I know I didn't know what he was doing, but Steve knew what he was doing. He took care of me and they would run people by me. And I was shocked by the people who wanted to play me because in my mind, I'm like, John Candy, John, Chris Farley, okay, comedy. <laughs> and then they're like, no, Brad Pitt, Matthew McConaughey, Aaron Eckhart. And I'm like, wow, they're, they're serious. And then Dennis and yeah you know Dennis and I are still friends to this day and it is still surreal to me Casey because we'll be doing something my phone will chime I'll look at it, it has Dennis Quaid written I'm like oh yeah we're friends that's cool sure sure so, so going back to that Russell Athletics also did a big deal out in Vegas for the premiere of the movie so they have like 5,000 people in a room made for 1,000 people. You could not breathe. And so Dennis and I are in there, and he tugs on my jacket, and he goes, I am getting out of here, and you are escaping with me. 
and we wheedled our way out of the room and we go out in the casino and there's nobody in the casino because everybody's in the party. So we sit down at the blackjack table, we're both having the water and we're just shooting the breeze and by now he and I have known each other for three and a half years and we're just friends. He's not a movie star. He's a guy that I've gone and watched play golf. He and I have gone to dinner a multitude of times. He and I have just hung out and conversed and joked and laughed and traveled together. So we're buddies. I look up within five minutes and there's 10 or 20,000 people around our table and I went, oh yeah, you're a movie star. Sure. And I can't imagine living that life every day and I'm glad I don't have to because I don't look like him. Now I'll tell my grandkids I look like him back then, but sure. for the most part, he said, if you see anything being filmed you don't like, you tell me it's out. Extremely happy with Dennis extremely happy with what he's done since then and so proud of him. Love John Lee Hancock, our director. And for at the time, I thought Disney did a great job with putting it all together and keeping it as true to the story as they possibly could. I loved it. Um, we, my wife and I watched the movie twice. Once before it came out, it was in black and white. There were music gaffes in it. There were sound gaffes. And they're like, it was three and a half hours long. And they're like, what'd you think? And I'm trying to like, Okay. Sure. And then two weeks later, I'm at the NPR conference in Nashville, National Public Religious Broadcasters Convention, and there's like 3,000 people in this theater to watch the movie. I have to watch the movie that I'd seen two weeks ago and thought, hmm. And then I have to get up and talk to these 3,000 people. I had to stop crying before I could get up and talk. I was blown away. I could not believe the product that they had put out. And I was on the set the whole time. And I just thought, holy cow, that is, that's, that's amazing. And the people that were there, I mean, Olympic athletes and people of every color persuasion and yeah. every athlete who could possibly be there was there. And I got to wear gold medals and silver medals and bronze medals. And it, from Australia and the U.S. and other countries. It was just so far beyond what a person can think up in their head. If I got my dream, what would my dream compose of? You can't go that far. Your mind sure. can't comprehend that. And then it happens and you're like, that is amazing. Now, the one thing I do miss, I miss the use of Disney's personal jet. That <laughs> did not suck. Yeah. And, you know, we, Dennis and I would fly to a city because they were worried that only kids would like it and parents wouldn't like the movie because it's rated G. And so they flew us around on a junk. It's the first time someone like me has ever gone with the star to do a movie junket and do all the newscast and radio and, and everything. And so we would go to a city like Seattle. We do radio and TV in the mornings. And then we would introduce a movie in the evenings and move on to the next place and have a reception. The adults loved it more than the kids did. And I mean, I grew up as a military brat, and so we go to San Francisco. When I lived on the West Coast, Oakland Athletics were my favorite, and Vita Blue, I wanted to be Vita Blue, man. Everybody wanted to be Vita Blue. I wanted to kick my leg up high. And I was Vita Blue for one pitch. 
and I kicked my leg up, and the first thing that hit the ground was my butt. And I went, I <laughs> am not Vita Blue. And it was just cool. And then other things happened on the set every single day. People from Disney would come around to Dennis and I when we were talking. They're like, if you had a party and it was the last dinner you ever had, who would be some of the people you would have at your party? And he and I were just were naming people. And then we go to New York for the premiere. And the night before the premiere, we go to dinner at, is it the 29 Club, the 19th Club? I can't remember now. It's closed now. The 29 Club. There were 29 Hall of Famers in the room having dinner with Dennis and I. Do you know who asked for my autograph? The person who played 24 games in the big leagues. Do you know who asked for my autograph? No. Willie Mays. Oh, wow. And I was like, and the stats, I'm sitting there amazed because I've watched all these guys or the people, and it's funny, and this is how I make fun of Dennis, right? All my guys are like from the 70s and 80s. His guys are like from the 50s and 60s. <laughs> but my agent, Steve, a guy would walk around, he goes, that's so-and-so. In the seventh inning with two guys on and two strikes, he hit 307. I'm like, yeah. how do you Wild. know? And there are just people that know that kind of stuff. But be in that room with those guys. And then the night that they watched the movie by themselves, Ozzie Smith was interviewed. And they, he said, he goes, if you go, would go to this movie and you watch it and you don't cry, you don't have a heart. That's a baseball player. Sure. Biggio loved it. I mean, all kinds of people have loved it. They showed the movie to all of spring training in 2002, and they loved it. And Dennis's wind-ups kind of hokey and everything else, but the story is there. It's not about baseball. It's about achieving a dream in the most unsuspecting way possible. I had given up. I had moved on. I had thought, if I can't play, I will teach. And if I can teach them how not to make the mistakes that I made, they'll be pretty good because I'm a person of lessons. If I do something and I get my nose rubbed in it enough, I go, hey, that's probably not the smartest way to approach that. So now I have the right way to do it. And then a group of 16 and 17-year-old kids who, by the way, when we made the bet, couldn't hit me, and by the end of the season, I couldn't get out pushed me back into a game, and I thought, I cannot even get a 16-year-old out, and I'm going to go impress a scout? That's going to be funny. And then look what happens. Yeah, it is amazing. Oh. So I'm hearing this theme of surround yourself with the best to be your best, and that's the title or subtitle of your book, Dream Maker, because it feels like that's what you did. I mean, you were a pitcher. That's what you were great at, but you hired the right agent who had some experience, who has been there and done that and you hired Disney or partnered with Disney and they were like the best right at creating these type of movies so like is that why or how you came up with this book title surround yourself with the best to be the best because that's exactly what you did to create like this career after baseball or kind of how'd you come up with that and then let's talk about dream maker book that's an ex post facto question that's when I look back and go I don't know what made me decide to go that direction, but I sure am glad I did. 
because I could have chosen a lot of things. Bill Plaschke for the LA Times wrote this huge article, my second day in the big leagues. It was a Sunday morning, so it's a Sunday paper. He had interviewed all my kids in big league. He had talked to my ex-wife. I covered the whole page of the sports page of the LA Times. I'd gone down to have breakfast in the restaurant. So my second day in the big leagues, I found out immediately as I pulled the paper out and everybody in the restaurant is staring at me, I learned, oh, room service. Okay. I shoved my paper back in and I go up. That day they had to change my name in the hotel because there was over 700 calls of people wanting to do documentaries, books, newspaper articles, movies. And so for those four days, Steve took me around meeting different movie companies. And I have to tell you, I was disgusted by almost every single one of them. And as we're walking across the grounds of Disney, we get out of Steve's car and he goes, I've heard you talk more than I've ever heard you talk in my life. But I haven't heard you say what you want. What do you want out of this movie? I said, I want a movie about kids who were counted out before they even got a chance to succeed. And then somehow, even through great odds, they succeeded. On the other side of that, I want people to know that no matter how many times you fail, if you get that second chance, you take that chance because you don't want to wake up one day and ask yourself, what if? Because if I had not taken that chance, not only do I not learn, but I failed on my keeping my word to those kids and gone, yeah, I got a contract offer, but I turned it down because I took the safe road and I'm teaching and coaching because that's what I'm good at. I'm successful at that. I failed over here, so I'm not doing that. I made the promise, but I'm not going to do it. So I signed it knowing that I could fail at any given time. Yeah. Jim, amazing, obviously, the story um, and how you've used this story to impact others through your business. So what are you doing today, and then how do people get a hold of you and find out more about uh, what you have to offer? Uh, JimTheRookieMorris.com is how you get a hold of my wife, who's my manager. I like to say I sleep with my manager. She's my wife. It's okay. Um, <laughs> we speak everywhere, man. Um, next week, <laughs> this is a funny one. Uh, we go to Virginia, and I'm doing a school in Virginia. We leave there immediately, get on a plane, get on another plane, get on another plane to go to Idaho, and I'm talking to real estate people in Idaho. Okay. And... It, we talk to corporations probably 80% of the time, and then the other breakdown are nonprofits and schools. And, and then I do some churches also. And then when churches kind of find out why there's a feather on the front of my book, I think it kind of scares them. Because when you start talking about miracles, they go, I don't know if we're ready for that. So, yeah. you know what? Some people aren't ready to hear the message, and that's okay. Other people are. Other people need that message. And so I'm going to do what I'm feeling I'm led to do. Jim, this is amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing and uh, so many insights and takeaways by surrounding yourself with the right people. And just I love it that you were able to push others, and they were able to push you. And I think if we can all have those type of people in our life, um, where we're adding value to others and they're adding value to us, we're going to be in really good shape. So, Jim, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Dugout CEO.
Absolutely, and don't take your family for granted. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir. Dugout Nation, wow, blown away with our time by Jim Morris. He might be the rookie, but he delivered some MVP-level content today. Here were my big three takeaways. Number one, hire great people and let them do their job. Jim even admitted that he didn't know exactly what was going on with the production of the film and all the negotiations, but he had the right team. He had an agent that had been there and done that. He hired the best production company, Disney. In Disney, it was a value fit. They had a similar vision, and they were aligned on values. And Jim understood what he wanted. He casted that vision, and he surrounded himself with great people who had a clear vision that were all in on helping him make his vision a reality. In his book, Dream Maker, it's all about surround yourself with the best to be your best. Number two, he needed to be pushed, and sometimes you have to be there to push others. Jim, he had a team of kids that pushed him and challenged him and motivated him. So my question is, who's pushing you? Who's pushing you at the top of your organization? If you're the head coach or the owner or the CEO, who's pushing you to get better each day? Who's challenging you? Who's asking you the tough questions? Jim had his team, and he had his people that were challenging him. Who's yours? And then he was there pushing the kids. He saw what was possible. He gave them a clear goal, and then he helped others work every day to make that happen. So who's pushing you, and who are you pushing? And number three, have a right-hand person. Jim talked a little bit about his wife, Shauna, that she handles like all the day-to-day -day operations of the business, which allows him to do more of what he loves best, which is speaking and sharing his story. She's the producer of the show, but Jim is the star. And in business and in life, you're either the star, the face, the name, the energy, the message, or someone that is often in support of others. If you're the star, oftentimes a head coach, a CEO, or at the top of an organization, who's your supporting cast? Do you trust them? Are they competent? Are they A players? Do they allow you to get out of the weeds so you focus on what does best? Jim, he's a speaker and he wants to do that. And you as a leader or a coach, you want to spend your time doing what you love and you're great at and delegating other things to other people that are A players that can help you make more of an impact. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP of what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to CaseyCavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.